Chapter Three, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen through nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Three, Part One. Winter Months. The month of March opened with a severe northeasterly gale. Five Waddells and two crab-eaters were shot on the floe during the morning of March 1st, and the wind, with fine drifting snow, sprang up while the carcasses were being brought in by sledging parties. The men were compelled to abandon some of the blubber and meat, and they had a struggle to get back to the ship over the rough ice in the teeth of the storm. This gale continued until the 3rd, and all hands were employed clearing out the tween-decks, which was to be converted into a living and dining-room for officers and scientists. The carpenter erected in this room the stove that had been intended for use in the shore-hut, and the quarters were made very snug. The dogs appeared indifferent to the blizzard. They emerged occasionally from the drift to shake themselves and bark, but were content most of the time to lie curled into tight balls under the snow. One of the old dogs, Saint, died on the night of the second, and the doctors reported that the cause of death was appendicitis. When the gale cleared, we found that the pack had been driven in from the northeast and was now more firmly consolidated than before. A new berg, probably fifteen miles in length, had appeared on the northern horizon. The bergs within our circle of vision had all become familiar objects, and we had names for some of them. Apparently they were all drifting with the pack. The sighting of a new berg was of more than passing interest, since in that comparatively shallow sea it would be possible for a big berg to become stranded. Then the island of ice would be a center of tremendous pressure and disturbance amid the drifting pack. We had seen something already of the smashing effect of a contest between berg and flow, and had no wish to have the helpless endurance involved in such a battle of giants. During the third, the seal meat and blubber was restowed on hummocks around the ship. The frozen masses had been sinking into the flow. Ice, though hard and solid to the touch, is never firm against heavy weights. An article left on the floe for any length of time is likely to sink into the surface ice. Then the salt water will percolate through, and the article will become frozen into the body of the floe. Clear weather followed the gale, and we had a series of mock suns and parhelia. Minus temperatures were the rule, 21 degrees below zero Fahrenheit being recorded on the 6th. We made mattresses for the dogs by stuffing sacks with straw and rubbish, and most of the animals were glad to receive this furnishing in their kennels. Some of them had suffered through the snow melting with the heat of their bodies and then freezing solid. The scientific members of the expedition were all busy by this time. The meteorologist had got his recording station, containing anemometer, barograph, and thermograph, rigged over the stern. The geologist was making the best of what to him was an unhappy situation, but was not altogether without material. The pebbles found in the penguins were often of considerable interest, and some fragments of rock were brought up from the seafloor with the sounding lead and the dragnet. On the 7th, Wordy and Worsley found some small pebbles, a piece of moss, a perfect bivalve shell, and some dust on a berg fragment, and brought their treasure trove proudly to the ship. Clark was using the dragnet frequently in the leads and secured good hauls of plankton, with occasional specimens of greater scientific interest. 
Seals were not plentiful, but our store of meat and blubber grew gradually. All hands ate seal meat with relish, and would not have cared to become dependent on the ship's tinned meat. We preferred the crab-eater to the Waddell, which is a very sluggish beast. The crab-eater was cleaner and healthier. The killer whales were still with us. On the 8th we examined a spot where the floe ice had been smashed up by a blow from beneath, delivered presumably by a large whale in search of a breathing place. The force that had been exercised was astonishing. Slabs of ice three feet thick and weighing tons had been tented upwards over a circular area with a diameter of about twenty-five feet, and cracks radiated outwards for more than twenty feet. The quarters in the tween decks were completed by the tenth, and the men took possession of the cubicles that had been built. The largest cubicle contained Macklin, McElroy, Hurley, and Hussey, and it was named the Billabong. Clark and Wardy lived opposite in a room called Old Reeky. Next came the abode of the Nuts, or engineers, followed by the Sailor's Rest, inhabited by Cheatham and McNeish. The anchorage and the fumarole were on the other side. The new quarters became known as the Ritz, and meals were served there instead of in the ward room. Breakfast was at 9 a.m., lunch at 1 p.m., tea at 4 p.m., and dinner at 6 p.m. Wild, Marston, Crean, and Worsley established themselves in cubicles in the ward room, and by the middle of the month all hands had settled down to the winter routine. I lived alone, aft. Worsley, Hurley, and Wardy made a journey to a big berg, called by us the Rampart Berg, on the 11th. The distance out was seven and a half miles, and the party covered a total distance of about seventeen miles. Hurley took some photographs, and Wardy came back rejoicing with a little dust and some moss. Within a radius of one mile around the berg there is thin young ice strong enough to march over with care, wrote Worsley. The area of dangerous pressure, as regards a ship, does not seem to extend for more than a quarter of a mile from the berg. Here there are cracks and constant slight movement, which becomes exciting to the traveller when he feels a piece of ice gradually upending beneath his feet. Close to the berg the pressure makes all sorts of quaint noises. We heard tapping as from a hammer, grunts, groans, and squeaks, electric trams running, birds singing, kettles boiling noisily, and an occasional swish as a large piece of ice, released from pressure, suddenly jumped or turned over. We noticed all sorts of quaint effects, such as huge bubbles or domes of ice forty feet across and four or five feet high. Large, sinuous pancake sheets were spread over the floe in places, and in one spot we counted five such sheets, each about two and a half inches thick, imprecated under one another. They looked as though made of barley sugar and are very slippery. The noon position on the 14th was latitude 76 degrees 54 minutes south, longitude 36 degrees 10 minutes west. The land was visible faintly to the southeast, distant about 36 miles. A few small leads could be seen from the ship, but the ice was firm in our neighborhood. The drift of the endurance was still towards the northwest. I had the boilers blown down on the 15th and the consumption of two hundred weight of coal per day to keep the boilers from freezing then ceased. The bunkers still contained fifty-two tons of coal, and the daily consumption in the stoves was about two and a half hundred weight. There would not be much coal left for steaming purposes in the spring, but I anticipated eking out the supply with blubber. A moderate gale from the northeast on the 17th brought fine, penetrating snow. 
The weather cleared in the evening, and a beautiful crimson sunset held our eyes. At the same time, the ice cliffs of the land were thrown up in the sky by mirage, with an apparent reflection in open water, though the land itself could not be seen definitely. The effect was repeated in an exaggerated form on the following day, when the ice cliffs were thrown up above the horizon in double and treble parallel lines, some inverted. The mirage was due probably to lanes of open water near the land. The water would be about thirty degrees warmer than the air, and would cause warm strata to ascend. A sounding gave six hundred and six fathoms, with a bottom of glacial mud. Six days later, on the twenty-fourth, the depth was four hundred and nineteen fathoms. We were drifting steadily, and the constant movement, coupled with the appearance of lanes near the land, convinced me that we must stay by the ship till she got clear. I had considered the possibility of making a landing across the ice in the spring, but the hazards of such an undertaking would be too great. The training of the dogs and sledge teams was making progress. The orders used by the drivers were mush, go on, G, right, haw, left, and woe, stop. These are the words that the Canadian drivers long ago adopted, borrowing them originally from England. There were many fights at first, until the dogs learned their positions and their duties. But as days passed, drivers and teams became efficient. Each team had its leader, and efficiency depended largely on the willingness and ability of this dog to punish skulking and disobedience. We learned not to interfere unless the disciplinary measures threatened to have a fatal termination. The drivers could sit on the sledge and jog along at ease if they chose but the prevailing minus temperatures made riding unpopular, and the men preferred usually to run or walk alongside the teams. We were still losing dogs through sickness, due to stomach and intestinal worms. Dredging for specimens at various depths was one of the duties during these days. The dredge and several hundred fathoms of wire line made a heavy load, far beyond the unaided strength of the scientists. On the 23rd, for example, we put down a two-foot dredge and 650 fathoms of wire. The dredge was hove in four hours later, and brought much glacial mud, several pebbles and rock fragments, three sponges, some worms, brachiopods, and foraminiferae. The mud was troublesome. It was heavy to lift, and as it froze rapidly when brought to the surface, the recovery of specimens embedded in it was difficult. A haul made on the 26th brought a prize for the geologist in the form of a lump of sandstone weighing 75 pounds, a piece of fossiliferous limestone, a fragment of striated shale, sandstone grit, and some pebbles. Hauling in the dredge by hand was severe work, and on the 24th we used the girling tractor motor, which brought in 500 fathoms of line in 30 minutes, including stops. One stop was due to water having run over the friction gear and frozen. It was a day or two later that we heard a great yell from the flow, and found Clark dancing about and shouting Scottish war cries. He had secured his first complete specimen of an Antarctic fish, apparently a new species. Mirages were frequent. Barrier cliffs appeared all around us on the 29th, even in places where we knew there was deep water. Bergs and pack are thrown up in the sky and distorted into the most fantastic shapes. They climb, trembling, upwards, spreading out into long lines at different levels, then contract and fall down, leaving nothing but an uncertain, wavering smudge which comes and goes. Presently the smudge swells and grows, 
taking shape until it presents the perfect inverted reflection of a berg on the horizon, the shadow hovering over the substance. More smudges appear at different points on the horizon. These spread out into long lines till they meet, and we are girdled by lines of shining snow cliffs, laved at their bases by water of illusion in which they appear to be faithfully reflected. So the shadows come and go silently, melting away finally as the sun declines to the west. We seem to be drifting helplessly in a strange world of unreality. It is reassuring to feel the ship beneath one's feet and to look down at the familiar line of kennels and igloos on the solid flow. The flow was not so solid as it appeared. We had reminders occasionally that the greedy sea was very close and that the flow was but a treacherous friend which might open suddenly beneath us. Towards the end of the month I had our store of seal meat and blubber brought aboard. The depth as recorded by a sounding on the last day of March was 256 fathoms. The continuous shoaling from 606 fathoms in a drift of 39 miles north, 26 degrees west, in 30 days was interesting. The sea shoaled as we went north, either to east or to west, and the facts suggested that the contour lines ran east and west, roughly. Our total drift between January 19th, when the ship was frozen in, and March 31st, a period of 71 days, had been 95 miles in a north, 80 degrees west direction. The icebergs around us had not changed their relative positions. The sun sank lower in the sky, the temperatures became lower, and the endurance felt the grip of the icy hand of winter. Two northeasterly gales in the early part of April assisted to consolidate the pack. The young ice was thickening rapidly, and though leads were visible occasionally from the ship, no opening of a considerable size appeared in our neighborhood. In the early morning of April 1st, we listened again for the wireless signals from Port Stanley. The crew had lashed three twenty-foot rickers to the mastheads in order to increase the spread of our aerials, but still we failed to hear anything. The rickers had to come down subsequently, since we found that the gear could not carry the accumulating weight of rime. Soundings proved that the sea continued to shoal as the endurance drifted to the northwest. The depth on April 2nd was 262 fathoms, with a bottom of glacial mud. Four weeks later, a sounding gave 172 fathoms. The presence of grit in the bottom samples towards the end of the month suggested that we were approaching land again. The month was not uneventful. During the night of the 3rd, we heard the ice grinding to the eastward, and in the morning we saw that young ice was rafted eight to ten feet high in places. This was the first murmur of the danger that was to reach menacing proportions in later months. The ice was heard grinding and creaking during the fourth, and the ship vibrated slightly. The movement of the flow was sufficiently pronounced to interfere with the magnetic work. I gave orders that accumulations of snow, ice, and rubbish alongside the endurance should be shoveled away, so that in case of pressure there would be no weight against the topsides to check the ship rising above the ice. All hands were busy with pick and shovel during the day, and moved many tons of material. Again on the ninth there were signs of pressure. Young ice was piled up to a height of eleven feet astern of the ship, and the old flow was cracked in places. The movement was not serious, but I realized that it might be the beginning of trouble for the expedition. We brought certain stores aboard, and provided space on deck for the dogs in case they had to be removed from the flow at short notice. 
We had run a five hundred fathom steel wire round the ship, snow huts, and kennels, with a loop out to the lead ahead where the dredge was used. This wire was supported on ice pillars, and it served as a guide in bad weather when the view was obscured by driving snow and a man might have lost himself altogether. I had this wire cut in five places, since otherwise it might have been dragged across our section of the floe with damaging effect in the event of the ice splitting suddenly. The dogs had been divided into six teams of nine dogs each. Wild, Crean, Macklin, McElroy, Marston, and Hurley each had charge of a team, and were fully responsible for the exercising, training, and feeding of their own dogs. They called in one of the surgeons when an animal was sick. We were still losing some dogs through worms, and it was unfortunate that the doctors had not the proper remedies. Worm powders were to have been provided by the expert Canadian dog driver I had engaged before sailing for the South, and when this man did not join the expedition, the matter was overlooked. We had fifty-four dogs and eight pups early in April, but several were ailing, and the number of mature dogs was reduced to fifty by the end of the month. Our store of seal meat amounted now to about five thousand pounds, and I calculated that we had enough meat and blubber to feed the dogs for ninety days without trenching upon the sledging rations. The teams were working well, often with heavy loads. The biggest dog was Hercules, who tipped the beam at eighty-six pounds. Samson was eleven pounds lighter, but he justified his name one day by starting off at a smart pace with a sledge carrying two hundred pounds of blubber and a driver. A new berg that was going to give us some cause for anxiety made its appearance on the 14th. It was a big berg, and we noticed as it lay on the northwest horizon that it had a hummocky, creviced appearance at the east end. During the day, this berg increased its apparent altitude and changed its bearing slightly. Evidently, it was aground and was holding its position against the drifting pack. A sounding at 11 a.m. gave 197 fathoms, with a hard stony or rocky bottom. During the next twenty-four hours, the endurance moved steadily towards the creviced berg, which doubled its altitude in that time. We could see from the masthead that the pack was piling and rafting against the mass of ice, and it was easy to imagine what would be the fate of the ship if she entered the area of disturbance. She would be crushed like an eggshell amid the shattering masses. Worsley was in the crow's nest on the evening of the 15th, watching for signs of land to the westward, and he reported an interesting phenomenon. The sun set amid a glow of prismatic colors on a line of clouds just above the horizon. A minute later, Worsley saw a golden glow, which expanded as he watched it, and presently the sun appeared again and rose to a semi-diameter clear above the western horizon. He hailed Crean, who from a position on the floe ninety feet below the crow's nest also saw the reborn sun. A quarter of an hour later from the deck, Worsley saw the sun set a second time. This strange phenomenon was due to mirage or refraction. We attributed it to an ice crack to the westward, where the band of open water had heated a stratum of air. The drift of the pack was not constant, and during the succeeding days the creviced berg alternately advanced and receded as the endurance moved with the flow. On Sunday, April 18th, it was only seven miles distant from the ship. It is a large berg, about three-quarters of a mile long on the side presented to us, and probably well over two hundred feet high. It is heavily creviced, as though it once formed the Serac portion of a glacier. 
Two specially wide and deep chasms across it from southeast to northwest give it the appearance of having broken its back on the shoal ground. Huge masses of pressure ice are piled against its cliffs to a height of about sixty feet, showing the stupendous force that is being brought to bear upon it by the drifting pack. The berg must be very firmly aground. We swing the arrow on the current meter frequently, and watch with keen attention to see where it will come to rest. Will it point straight for the berg, showing that our drift is in that direction? It swings slowly round. It points to the northeast end of the berg, then shifts slowly to the center and seems to stop. But it moves again and swings twenty degrees clear of our enemy to the southwest. We notice that two familiar bergs, the Rampart Berg and the Peak Berg, have moved away from the ship. Probably they also have grounded or dragged on the shoal. A strong drift to the westward during the night of the 18th relieved our anxiety by carrying the endurance to the lee of the creviced berg, which passed out of our range of vision before the end of the month. We said goodbye to the sun on May 1st, and entered the period of twilight that would be followed by the darkness of midwinter. The sun, by the aid of refraction, just cleared the horizon at noon and set shortly before 2 p.m., a fine aurora in the evening was dimmed by the full moon, which had risen on April 27th, and would not set again until May 6th. The disappearance of the sun is apt to be a depressing event in the polar regions, where the long months of darkness involve mental as well as physical strain. But the Endurance's company refused to abandon their customary cheerfulness, and a concert in the evening made the Ritz a scene of noisy merriment, in strange contrast with the cold, silent world that lay outside. One feels our helplessness as the long winter night closes upon us. By this time, if fortune had smiled upon the expedition, we would have been comfortably and securely established in a shore base, with depots laid to the south and plans made for the long march in the spring and summer. Where will we make a landing now? It is not easy to forecast the future. The ice may open in the spring, but by that time we will be far to the northwest. I do not think we shall be able to work back to Vossel Bay. There are possible landing places on the western coast of the Weddell Sea, but can we reach any suitable spot early enough to attempt the overland journey next year? Time alone will tell. I do not think any member of the expedition is disheartened by our disappointment. All hands are cheery and busy, and will do their best when the time for action comes. In the meantime, we must wait. The ship's position on Sunday, May 2nd, was latitude 75 degrees, 23 minutes south, longitude 42 degrees, 14 minutes west. The temperature at noon was 5 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, and the sky was overcast. A seal was sighted from the masthead at lunchtime, and five men with two dog teams set off after the prize. They had an uncomfortable journey outward in the dim, diffused light, which cast no shadows and gave no warning of irregularities in the white surface. It is a strange sensation to be running along on apparently smooth snow and to fall suddenly into an unseen hollow or bump against a ridge. After going out three miles to the eastward, wrote Worsley, in describing this seal hunt, we range up and down but find nothing, until from a hummock I fancy I see something, apparently a mile away, but probably little more than half that distance. I ran for it, found the seal, and with a shout brought up the others at the double. The seal was a big Waddell, over ten feet long and weighing more than eight hundred pounds. But Soldier, one of the team leaders, 
went for its throat without a moment's hesitation, and we had to beat off the dogs before we could shoot the seal. We caught five or six gallons of blood in a tin for the dogs, and let the teams have a drink of fresh blood from the seal. The light was worse than ever on our return, and we arrived back in the dark. Sir Ernest met us with a lantern, and guided us into the lead astern and thence to the ship. This was the first seal we had secured since March 19th, and the meat and blubber made a welcome addition to the stores. Three emperor penguins made their appearance in the lead west of the ship on May 3rd. They pushed their heads through the young ice while two of the men were standing by the lead. The men imitated the emperor's call and walked slowly, penguin fashion, away from the lead. The birds in succession made a magnificent leap three feet clear from the water onto the young ice. Thence they tobogganed to the bank and followed the men away from the lead. Their retreat was soon cut off by a line of men. We walk up to them, talking loudly and assuming a threatening aspect. Notwithstanding our bad manners, the three birds turned toward us, bowing ceremoniously. Then, after a closer inspection, they conclude that we are undesirable acquaintances and make off across the floe. We head them off and finally shepherd them close to the ship, where the frenzied barking of the dogs so frightens them that they make a determined effort to break through the line. We seize them. One bird of philosophic mien goes quietly, led by one flipper. The others show fight, but all are imprisoned in an igloo for the night. In the afternoon we see five emperors in the western lead and capture one. Kerr and Cheatham fight a valiant action with two large birds. Kerr rushes at one, seizes it, and is promptly knocked down by the angered penguin, which jumps on his chest before retiring. Cheatham comes to Kerr's assistance, and between them they seize another penguin, bind his bill, and lead him, muttering muffled protests, to the ship like an inebriated old man between two policemen. He weighs eighty-five pounds, or five pounds less than the heaviest emperor captured previously. Kerr and Cheatham insist that he is nothing to the big fellow who escaped them. This penguin's stomach proved to be filled with freshly caught fish up to ten inches long. Some of the fish were of a coastal or littoral variety. Two more emperors were captured on the following day, and while Wardy was leading one of them towards the ship, Wilde came along with his team. The dogs, uncontrollable in a moment, made a frantic rush for the bird, and were almost upon him when their harness caught upon an ice pylon, which they had tried to pass on both sides at once. The result was a seething tangle of dogs, traces, and men, and an overturned sled, while the penguin, three yards away, nonchalantly and indifferently surveyed the disturbance. He had never seen anything of the kind before, and had no idea at all that the strange disorder might concern him. Several cracks had opened in the neighborhood of the ship, and the emperor penguins, fat and glossy of plumage, were appearing in considerable numbers. We secured nine of them on May 6th, an important addition to our supply of fresh food. The sun, which had made positively his last appearance, seven days earlier, surprised us by lifting more than half its disk above the horizon on May 8th. A glow on the northern horizon resolved itself into the sun at 11 a.m. that day. A quarter of an hour later the unseasonable visitor disappeared again, only to rise again at 11.40 a.m., set at 1 p.m., rise at 1.10 p.m., and set lingeringly at 1.20 p.m. These curious phenomena were due to refraction, which amounted to 2 degrees 37 minutes at 1.20 p.m. The temperature was 15 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, and we calculated that the refraction was 2 degrees above normal.
In other words, the sun was visible 120 miles farther south than the refraction tables give it any right to be. The navigating officer naturally was aggrieved. He had informed all hands on May 1st that they would not see the sun again for 70 days, and now had to endure the jeers of friends who affected to believe that his observations were inaccurate by a few degrees. The endurance was drifting north-northeast under the influence of a succession of westerly and southwesterly breezes. The ship's head, at the same time, swung gradually to the left, indicating that the flow in which she was held was turning. During the night of the 14th, a very pronounced swing occurred, and when daylight came at noon on the 15th, we observed a large lead running from the northwest horizon towards the ship till it struck the western lead, circling ahead of the ship, then continuing to the south-southeast. A lead astern connected with this new lead on either side of the Endurance, thus separating our flow completely from the main body of the pack. A blizzard from the southeast swept down during the 16th. At 1 p.m. the blizzard lulled for five minutes. Then the wind jumped round to the opposite quarter, and the barometer rose suddenly. The center of a cyclonic movement had passed over us, and the compass recorded an extraordinarily rapid swing of the flow. I could see nothing through the mist and snow, and I thought it possible that a magnetic storm or a patch of local magnetic attraction had caused the compass, and not the flow, to swing. Our flow was now about two and a half miles long, north and south, and three miles wide, east and west. End of chapter 3, part 1